on the website. So if you want to hear it uh, after the next day, you can go and hear that sermon. But next week we'll be dealing with he descended into hell and what all that means. This morning, however, we are looking at the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and him suffering under Pontius Pilate. This is a Good Friday sermon. We don't typically do a Good Friday service, and I always feel a little bit cheated by that because we'll do the Palm Sunday on the Sunday before Easter, and then I'll do a resurrection sermon. But in the middle of that, we miss something of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about, Christ's suffering, his passion uh, in the old way of talking about it, passion being the old word for suffering. Uh, well, we're about to start the football season. Uh, one of my favorite people, he's not one of my favorite coach, coaches, I don't care for him too much as a coach, but one of my favorite people uh, in the sphere of college football is Steve Spurrier. Uh, he is the son of a Presbyterian minister, and there's just something about Steve Spurrier that seems Presbyterian to me. He's, he's very uh, together, and he's very... Um, uh, you know, unless one of his quarterbacks does something really wrong and he throws his headset, he doesn't get upset very often. He's very stoic, a lot like a, like a lot of Presbyterians I know. We don't, we don't get ruffled very much. And in the midst of, uh, of uh, conferences or in the midst of um, media opportunities for him to talk to the media, he always has something witty to say. He, he always has a backhanded compliment. And he knows just exactly how to tear somebody down without them knowing it. And it's only after the fact... Uh, that you go back and you read the transcript or you hear what he says that you realize he's really making fun of the people that he's talking to. There's just something about his demeanor that I like. Uh, I also like the fact that as college coaches go, he only spends maybe 40 hours a week preparing his team. He plays golf every morning and every afternoon. He isn't going to be dictated to, by, uh, by his time, by anything. He looks at the game and he says, there are a bunch of college kids they're a bunch of kids. I'm not going to spend my time worrying about them because they're going to do the things that college kids do, and I appreciate that. Uh, whenever his team doesn't do very well and people in the media start asking about his team and, and their strategies, he doesn't go into the options that they have or the blocking schemes or the route trees. He always just kind of looks and says, football is an easy game. It's a simple matter of uh, pitch and catch, just like a dad going out with his son playing uh, a game of ball, just throwing the ball back and forth. That's all it is, and the game of football is really just very simple, and I appreciate that. He boils it down that in the midst of all the complicated stuff that you see coaches trying to do, it's really just about pitching and catching, and that's it. He gets to the heart and soul. Well, the heart and soul of Christianity is very simple as well. It's Christ and Him crucified. We can, uh, this is the simple message of Christ, and oftentimes we're not satisfied with that simple message. We want it to be more. Uh, and so some churches, they treat this message like it's a Christmas tree, and they take it and they feel like it's just a bare tree, and you have to put ornaments on it and tinsel and shiny things and something on it and lights and all this to make it look better than it is. And so the worship services are full of things like loud rock and roll music or whatever kind of music that church tends to like and big productions and all that sort of stuff. And they hype up the gospel message because they feel like it's not enough. Well, that's one group of Christians. Um, we're not like that group. Uh, we try to do everything pretty simply here. 
And yet I find in myself that oftentimes, sinfully, I don't appreciate the simple message of the cross. And instead of doing things like hyping up the message with music or anything like that, what I tend to do is I tend to make the gospel a technical discussion. And unless you can rise to this level of theology or a certain level of theology, then you don't really understand the message. Well, honestly, the gospel is very simple. It's about God himself dying and suffering for the sake of his people. And we need to understand this message. So this morning I want to read Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 12, on through the end of chapter 53. It seems like it's a lot of words, but it's not. And very clearly, 700 years before Christ, this is the message that Paul gave to Isaiah to proclaim to Israel. Hear God's good and kind word this morning. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this passage. Pray with me. Great God and Father, we thank you for giving us this word. That centuries before your son was born of the virgin and lived the life 
that he lived of suffering and went to the cross for our sakes. You proclaim to your people this message that he would come, that he would live, that he would suffer, and that he would die. And yet thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions of Jews rejected this one that you spoke of. Pray, Father, that you would help us to not be like them today. That you would open our hearts to hearing the gospel message. That we might be saved by your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for healing us by his stripes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I want to look at this in three ways. We want to look at the servant that is proclaimed here, who he is. We want to look at his suffering, that is what he does for us. And then thirdly, his success, how good he did. First of all, the servant, who he is. The book of Isaiah is a fairly complicated book. Uh, I read a few articles this week talking about the structure of the book of Isaiah. uh, And its structure is mind-boggling. That Isaiah was a masterful servant of the Lord, a masterful servant. And he wrote this intricate book all of it to proclaim the glory of God. And he begins in chapters 1 through uh, 5, basically laying out the sins of the people of Israel. And in some of the harshest language in all of the scriptures, uh, he tells us uh, what their sin deserves. He says all of the men are going to be killed, uh, all the men of Israel are going to be killed, and all the women uh, in their beauty, they're going to have human feces cover them. Drastic stuff. It's actually fun and exciting stuff to read, and I wish we would read it more because it would hold our attention. Anytime you say human feces uh, from the pulpit, everybody kind of goes, wow, okay, it's going to be that kind of sermon. All right, I'm paying attention. Well, that's in the first few chapters of Isaiah. And then Isaiah chapter 6, you get this incredible vision that God himself on his temple... And we know him as the second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We're told by John in John chapter 12 that Isaiah saw Jesus and he proclaimed him to us. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah meets Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate body before he's born. God himself, the train of his robe, fills the temple. The seraphim, these creatures... That if we were to see them, we would be terrified. We would lose ourselves before them. Uh, They're kind of snake-like or they move like snakes and they have six wings and they're constantly burning and they proclaim holy, holy, holy. They look at God and they are so enthralled with the holiness of God that they actually can't look at Him. They cover their faces before His glory. And Isaiah sees Him and says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And then one of the seraph flies and touches his lips with coals, and he say, Behold, your sins are taken away. They are atoned for. They have been burned off. And that sets the stage for the way that God is going to save his people. He's going to send them into exile. And from uh, chapter Uh, 7 all the way to the end of chapter 39, God says, I'm sending you into exile, into exile, into exile. And then little snippets, little promises come where a servant, God's servant is going to come and he's going to save his people. And God's servant through those chapters, he's strong. He is mighty. He is the mighty arm of the Lord who comes to save his people. He doesn't just bring might to slay the wicked, but he brings justice 
That for those that are poor and oppressed, he brings justice into the world. He makes sure that all the wrongs are righted. And he does this in righteousness. And you have this incredible picture of a strong servant and of a just servant. And then you also see that he's obedient to God, that he does all things perfectly. And all through the book of Isaiah up to chapter 52, you get this picture of the servant who is strong, who is mighty, who's going to save his people because he's so wonderful. It's the promise of the Messiah that's going to come and save God's people. And then you get here to chapter 52, verse 13, and there's a change that happens. Because you learn that the servant isn't just strong and mighty, that he isn't just coming to wipe out wickedness, but that he's actually going to come to suffer and to die. And everyone reading this says, wait, what? The, surf, the, the servant who is strong and mighty is going to suffer and die. Why is he going to do that? Why is he going to do these things? And we find out he does it for us. Uh, this is actually a chapter. Uh, there's a, a little video that's going around uh, Facebook, and you can find it. And it's a chapter that's told that Jewish people do not read this chapter in their synagogues. Um, they don't read it, uh, and it's left out of their liturgy because... They're afraid of reading this because every Jewish person that hears this and they read this, they draw the connection and they say, we don't talk about Jesus very much. We don't like to talk about Jesus because they understand that talking about Jesus, if he is the Messiah, then they're wrong and they must serve him. And so uh, you watch this video that's floating around and they read this, the, this portion to Jewish people and they, all of them without a fail say, that sounds like Jesus. And they say, we've never heard this from the book of Isaiah because they're afraid to hear it. And then once they hear it, they say, yes, that is talking about Jesus who suffered and died for his people. But they don't want a servant that suffers and dies. They want a servant who is strong and mighty. They want one that saves them, not through death. But here he is, he suffers and dies. We also read here that there's nothing stately or majestic about the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 of chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Uh, this is a wilderness weed. This is one who, uh, a tree that grows up in dry ground. Garland was just driving through uh, Texas, West Texas, and he talks about the trees. They don't get any taller than him there because the ground is so dry. Uh, this actually leads me to say that Jesus was probably very short, um, which is another example of saying that Jesus, God loves short people, clearly. Um, he loves short people more than he loves tall people. I say that often. But here, Jesus, he was a short little wilderness tree. Uh, he had no former majesty, he continues, that we should look at him. There was nothing about him that was majestic or, or had any glory. Uh, kingly people are supposed to have majesty. They're supposed to conduct themselves in a certain way, and they're supposed to carry themselves in a certain way, a way that is not like us. And we like that about kingly people, that they're not like us. But here, God says, no, the servant is going to come, and he's not going to have any majesty. He won't carry himself in the way that kings do. He won't separate himself, and instead he's going to identify with his people. So he has the wrong birth. I want you to note these three things that he has. First of all, he grows up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, the wrong birth, and Christ was born in a manger, 
among the animals, not like a king. He had the wrong look. He had no former majesty. He was a pauper and not a prince. He was a poor man and not a king. And then thirdly, he had the wrong plight. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Oh, what a name. He was acquainted with grief. And he was one as... as he was as one from whom men hide their faces. When a dignitary comes to town, he doesn't, we don't have many dignitaries come uh, here to Clinton, but not that long ago, Bill Cassidy came, didn't he? Well, about the best dignitary that we can get, a state representative comes, and he, uh, he has a town hall meeting here. And guess what? People showed up to see this man. Well, Jesus Christ showed up, and no one wanted to see him because he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He couldn't possibly be the Christ. Over and over in Christ's life, whenever he would go and speak, people would look at him and say, He's from Galilee. Yuck! Nothing good can can come from Nazareth or from Galilee. Even his closest friends thought that about him. And this is just a reminder to us who the servant is. And our faith is not in the advice that he gave. Our hope is is in this person, the promised one. God sent us his son as a servant. And our hope again is in a person, not in advice. Our hope is not in what we do. Our hope is not in us being good. Our hope is in Christ. And that's good news for us. So that's the first thing I want you to see, uh, that Christ is the servant, and we see who he is. The servant of the Lord Secondly, I want you to see his suffering, what he does. Uh, you see all through these verses, the servant does three things. Look at 52.13 with me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Uh, that's a simple way of saying that he's going to be wise, he's going to be good. It's another way of saying that he's going to live righteously. The servant of the Lord is going to come and live perfectly. That's the first thing he does. Secondly, we see that he's going to passively be rejected by men. Look at 3 and 4 of chapter 53 again. He was despised and rejected by men. And at the end of that, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then he turned to verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God and smitten and afflicted. So we see here that he's going to be rejected by men and by God. And then thirdly, he's going to bear our sins and our punishment. Look at chapter 53, verses 6, 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He's going to act wisely. He's going to be rejected by men and God. And then he's going to bear our sins and our punishment. Let me give you a word here, uh, that a technical word. And I know you're about to say, but you said this was simple. Uh, and I want to introduce something to you that is hard uh, to hear, hard to say. But it's something I want you to, to carry with you because it is, it is the gospel. Uh, it's this little phrase that what Christ came to do. Uh, theologians called penal substitutionary atonement, right? Penal substitutionary atonement. That Christ came as a sacrifice to take the punishment. That's that word penal, the punishment. To substitute, be in our place in the atonement 
the, the punishment that we deserve to turn away the wrath of God. This is the clear teaching of the Scriptures from beginning to end. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And God says, if you sin, you will die. And yet there is God having a conversation with two people that deserve death. And in the midst of that chapter, God promises that they will be saved by one man who's going to come forth and is going to ultimately kill the serpent for them. And then later on in the chapter, what God does is he takes an innocent animal, he slaughters it, and he sheds the blood of an animal for his people, and he covers Adam and Eve in the skins of another. They have to be covered. Maybe that's the phrase that we understand um, that we use all the time. I've got you covered. If you owe a debt, if you go to lunch and someone says, I'm going to pay for you, I've got you covered. I think it goes back to this idea where we have a debt that we owe and God covers his people with the skins of an animal. I mentioned this in the children's sermon, Genesis chapter 22, that God sacrifices the ram and accepts the sacrifice of a ram instead of Isaac. It was well understood in all ancient um, ancient uh, uh, people that sacrifice, God demanded sacrifice. And in many of them, they would sacrifice their children to God. And here in this example, God says, I provide a sacrifice for you. He accepts the sacrifice of a substitute. Exodus chapter 12, once again, God says, In order for your people to not die when the angel of death comes, when the punisher comes, what must you do? You must sacrifice a lamb and take his blood and cover the door of the house. And the people of Israel were to sacrifice this lamb year after year. And then you get into Leviticus, and then you get into Numbers, into Deuteronomy. And year after year, they celebrate the Passover. And the high priest takes two rams, and he puts his hands on one and sends one out into the wilderness. And he takes another, and he sacrifices it. And he covers himself in the blood of that lamb, and then goes into the Holy of Holies. And he covers the Holy of Holies in blood, saying, God, do not strike out in judgment against your people except the sacrifice of this lamb. Over and over, the blood of rams the blood of goats, the blood of lambs that is shed for his people. And then the story of the lamb kind of carries throughout the, the Old Testament over and over. And every time a lamb, is, his blood is shed, the people are saved. And what we learn from this is that the people need a substitute. But it's got to be a willful substitute. It's got to be the substitute of one who is like us. One who is perfect without spot or blemish. God's means of salvation is this way. In order for anyone to be saved, they must be covered by the blood of the perfect substitute. And here, 700 years before Christ, he once again points and says, He is the sacrifice that you need. We are saved, understand this, as Protestants who believe in justification by faith alone. We preach that. We believe that absolutely. But you need to understand that you are saved by works. You are saved by the work of another. Just because we believe that it's by faith that you are saved does not mean that work doesn't have to be done. And here Christ is the one that worked for you by living the life that you could not live. Living it perfectly before God. By taking the punishment that you deserve and going to the cross and suffering for us. 
and then rising from the dead so that we can have new life in him. Jesus Christ in his suffering and the promises that he stands in our place and we are covered by his works. That's what Christ did and his suffering points us to that. He suffered his entire life so that we would not have to suffer. And then lastly, his success. How did he do? Well, how do you measure success? Sometimes it's hard to know how good a job you've done. Some of you have jobs where it's easy to tell that. Other times it's harder to know. And what we need more than anything else is validation. We need to have someone say, you've done a good job. Um, every week this happens to me. I love it. I get instant, instant validation. Y'all come and you have to walk by me because I'm going to stand in your way. And most of you, even if it's a, not a good sermon, you tell me, good job. You did a good job. Even if it's not true, so you're lying to the pastor even in that moment. It's amazing you, you lie right as soon as you leave here. But if it's a good job or not, you give me that validation and you say, good job. But you know what's interesting is that it's never enough for you to tell me good job. It's never enough for me to walk away from here saying, yeah, that was pretty good. And I never walk away saying, oh, I did really good. Thankfully, I have Amy that reminds me oftentimes that I did a terrible job during that sermon. And that's her loving me by telling me that. She's standing right there looking at me, scowling at me for saying that. But, but the validation that you give me isn't enough. And, and oftentimes what I need, and pastors talk about this on Monday mornings, they hate Monday mornings because what we want is for some validation that we've done a good job. And what we find is that too often nothing's ever good enough. We can't please the people in our lives. We can't please our children, our spouses. We can't please our bosses. Even if we're our own bosses, we become more critical of ourselves and nothing ever seems to be good enough. What about Christ? Well, when Christ said it is finished, he meant it's finished and his work was completed. And God said to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus had the best validation that he needed that God himself said, you have done the work and you have done it well. And that's how Jesus measured success. And we're told here at the end of chapter 53 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. That because of his good work, Christ has succeeded. And what did he receive for his success? I won't have you turn there, but in John chapter 17 verse 4, Christ says, glorify me because I have glorified you. What Jesus Christ gets is the glory of the Father. And it's only because he goes through that suffering for us that he gets the glory. That actually is, is a good reason why we suffer as well. You and I want glory without suffering. But even Jesus had to go through the suffering to get the glory. That's what Satan offered him when he tempted him. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan said, I want to give you glory without the cross. And Jesus Christ said, if I, if I get glory any other way, then my people will not receive glory either. So, but Jesus Christ got glory because he suffered and what does that mean for you? Well, there's a couple of things. Look at the end of verse 11, and I'll do this very quickly. Jesus Christ comes and he says this, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Even here in Isaiah, we get this language of accounting. If you need a good account, you can go see Mr. Clyde. He can explain this language to you. That because Christ has died for you, you are accounted as righteous and good before God. 
you are credited with his righteousness. You get the commendation of being good. So that when Christ or when God looks at Jesus and says, well done, my good and faithful service servant, that through faith in him, guess what you get? You get the validation that he gets as well. So that God looks at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is God's grace to you and me. Grace for people that need to hear that. Moms, you have a hard job. You have a difficult job. And there's this thing called mommy guilt that is a very real thing because you never feel like you've done enough. In Christ, the good news for you is that you have done everything perfectly, not because you're good, but because you get his righteousness. There's also a thing called daddy guilt that I'm learning about. And it's the feeling that every day you never do enough. You can never do enough in Christ Jesus through faith in him. We have the promise that we've always done enough. In your work, you look back and you say, there's always something more that can be done. And Christ says, it is finished. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we get the spoils of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's talking about us. We are the strong. Not because we're strong in and of ourselves. We're strong through faith in Jesus Christ. We have victory in Jesus. The problem is we have a wrong view of victory. Victory oftentimes looks like going through suffering. It's not the comfortable road. And Christ got that victory by going through suffering. And Christ is with us in our suffering. We're promised suffering in this life. So you can expect it as well. Here's your challenge As you suffer, I want you to look to the suffering of Christ for you. And then look for opportunities to show forth Christ in your suffering. Because regardless of that, through faith, you're called a good servant of God. And you get the spoils of that victory. And that's good news for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We thank you for your son who lived and suffered and died for us. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who claim that the promises of God who claim the suffering of Christ on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for accepting the sacrifice of the substitute for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.